Great. Thank you, Anthony. Well, let me pray for us as uh, we come and look at that passage together. Let me pray. Uh, Father, we ask for your help this morning. Uh, We're conscious that these are great words. And, Lord, we want to ask for your help in understanding them, but maybe even more so in appreciating just their breadth and depth for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, keep that passage open in front of you. There's also an outline on the inside of your notice sheet, if that's useful, and uh, Lucy will be tapping through the PowerPoint for us as well, so hopefully that will uh, help you track along this morning. Uh, If the the Christian gospel, the good news of the Christian faith is true, and uh, I believe it is, we believe it is, then an action outside of ourselves, an action that we would not have been able to do ourselves, that we would not have asked for, that we wouldn't have deserved ourselves, an action of God himself done uh, by the Son according to the plan of the Father in the power of the Spirit, an action centered on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he gave his life in the place of sinners, then there, in that action, and according to that plan, God has satisfied his own wrath, administered divine justice, and granted mercy and salvation to all who would receive it by faith. That is the gospel. We summarized it a couple of weeks ago with this statement, God saves freely in Christ all who have faith in him. I thought you might read that out with me, because you might remember that's what we did, but anyway, you didn't. God says, freely in Christ, all who have faith in him. There you go. So this morning, it's possible for anybody in this room, it's possible for anybody outside of this room, by simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be saved from God's coming judgment and have confidence in this moment, right now, today, that before God we are righteous, justified, Nothing to fear in life and death. Now, we covered that in a lot of detail a couple of weeks ago, and if you can't remember any of that, or you weren't here, do go and have a listen on the church website. It's up there uh, for you. But this morning, what I want us to consider together is how that news changes everything. That justification by faith, the declaration by God that we're in the right before him, that work of God through the Son in the power of the Spirit changes everything. Not just how we stand before God, but everything. It changes how I think about myself. It changes how I relate to others. It changes what I think God's word is about and how I will understand it. And I want us to try and work through that together this morning if we can. So let's start with this. I want to show you from the passage that the gospel changes how I view myself. How I view myself. Verses 27 and 28. I think when you look at the passage, the big surprise is why on earth does Paul start talking about boasting in verse 27? It's such a crunching gear. You've gone from the heights of the work of God in Christ to the depths of big heads and big mouths. It's like going from eating fine chocolate to picking up dog poo off the streets. You know, it's like we've gone from the the heights of God's glory to the depth of human boasting. Why would we Why would we do that? Why would Paul go so quickly from one to the other? And I think to try and answer that question, let's get a few definitions under our belt first. Let's let's think firstly, what is boasting? What does he mean by boasting? I think when we think of boasting, we tend to think mostly of uh, big-headed people with big gobs who can't shut up about how brilliant they think they are. You know, the, the kid at school who's really full of themselves, they're going on and on and on about all the cool stuff that they have. Uh, It's like 
Donald Trump's election campaign, if I can say that. You know, it's that sort of thing, anyone's election campaign. How brilliant they say they are all the time. But the, pr- the truth is that Paul's definition here is much broader than that. In fact, boasting here is really essentially an outward expression of a heart that is inwardly trusting itself. It's an outward expression of self-interest, self-pleasing, desire-led, sinful nature. Boasting is essentially self-worship in the passage. It becomes even clearer when you consider that the word for boasting here could also be translated glory. And that without another object for that verb, it essentially means glorifying ourselves, to be self-glorifying. It's, like, it's, the, it's the opposite, isn't it, of Christian worship where we seek to bring glory to God for the work of Christ. We're now trying to bring uh, glory to ourselves. Instead of delighting in who God is and what he has done, we are boasting in who I am and what I have done. It's the, it's the antithesis, antithesis, which is difficult to say, antithesis of saving faith, the opposite of the Christian life. And that's why it's such a problem. We, we've seen it's a problem for the Jew in chapter 2 who glories in their obedience to the law. They seek to control God by their obedience to him. It's a problem for the Gentile who in chapter 1 we see glories in knowledge. I know all that is to be known. I don't need God. I don't want him. They don't seek to hold on to the knowledge of God. It means as well, doesn't it, that boasting isn't necessarily a verbal proclamation of our achievements. It might be. But I think probably for us this morning in our understated Western culture, it's much more likely that our boasting is seen in silent, self-indulgent materialism. I'm worth it, we say. And that's the attitude that we have towards you know, where we live and what we do and what we buy. And a self-worshipping instinct towards material acquisition, an insatiable desire for comfort and ease as the reward for hard work and good living. I deserve this, we say. I deserve a break. Looking for status and acclaim, not so much from what we say, but from what we have. So our lives essentially become the story of doing what we want, when we want, where we want, with who we want. Because deep in our hearts, we believe that we're worth it. It's boasting, says Paul. The other definition that we need to get under our belt, though, is the law of faith at the end of verse 27. Look at the end of verse 27. He calls it a law of faith. Now, we need to be careful here. Paul is not saying that faith comes with rules. This is not law and faith together. It's not that when we become Christians, uh, God sort of condenses the Old Testament law just to one simple command, which says, you know, thou shalt not boast. That's not what's going on here. Nor does Paul have in view a changed holy life. We need to be clear on that. He's not saying so much that faith enables me to be a better person. Paul here hasn't changed his topic from justification to sanctification. He's not changed topic from how I am saved to now how I live. He is still talking about justification. He's still talking about the declaration of God that we are saved through the work of Christ alone. His point instead is that that saving faith, that empty hand, if you like, that receives the work of Christ, that empty hand, that faith comes with a pattern, a shape, for life, a transforming reality. Think about it like this, if you can. It's the difference between an app on your phone and the operating system on your phone. Some of you have lit up. Others of you have slowly died inside. An app on your phone or the operating system on your phone. You know, if saving faith is simply an app that you turn to to deal with sin 
or to deal with death or to deal with the difficult things in your life, then, then it's a very small thing. But Paul's point here is no, that saving faith is more like the operating system under which you operate in every area of your life. Everything that you do is done through this, he says. It's the law of faith. Now that is massively significant. It means that from what Paul is saying here, the law of faith, the, the operating system of saving faith, means that saving faith can never be reduced just to a simple statement that you might make. It's not possible for you to believe in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus in the way that Romans 3 is talking about and not be radically transformed by that in every area of your life. I can't underline this enough. Young people this morning, it is really easy for you to say, especially when you have lots of Christian friends, it's really easy for you to say, yeah, I have faith in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. But that statement, if it does not transform the way that you think about your life, if it's not changing what you think the purpose of life is, then that faith is not saving faith. It's just head knowledge. It won't save you. And we all need to understand that, don't we? That faith in Christ is not just words we say or information that we believe, but a whole new way of loving and living and thinking shaped around who Christ is and what he has done for us on the cross. And if you've never believed like that, then please ask the Lord that he would make that true for you. Lord God, please help me to put my faith in Christ in such a way that it transforms everything about who I am. He loves to answer that prayer. He loves to answer that prayer. Now just put this together with me for a moment. The crunching gear between verse 26 and 27 is because Paul thinks that justification by faith, these great truths about what God has done in Christ on the cross, in the gospel, what he has done outside of ourselves on our behalf in Christ, those truths land really, really practically, specifically here in a way that stops boasting in whatever form that might come. Now, before we move on, we need to think about how that works. How is it that the law of faith stops boasting? And I've got two answers to that for you this morning. Firstly, faith kills boasting because it sees the glory of Christ. When I was a a teenager, I used to play the guitar quite a bit. I had quite a lot of lessons. I used to play at church. And I got a new guitar for my 18th birthday, which I was very, very pleased with. And I went away to university and I took that guitar with me, thinking, ha, I'm rather good at guitar and I'm going to play guitar at university. But when I got there, I shared a room with a guy called Mark. Mark had never played the guitar before, but was delighted that I had brought one with me into our shared room, so he got to play it. And I watched over the weeks of that first term as Mark picked up my guitar, had absolutely no lessons at all, but developed an ability to play the guitar way beyond anything that I had achieved over the last, I don't know, five or six years of lessons and practice and playing at church. Oasis was kind of cool at the time, so he was just playing Oasis songs all the time with this kind of natural sense of rhythm, and it was brilliant. Now that, you might imagine, stopped me ever saying that I play the guitar. It might have been a shock to you this morning to hear that I've ever had a guitar lesson in my life. Why did that stop me from saying that? Well, because I knew then what it really looked like to be able to play the guitar. Now that's what's going on in these verses, isn't it? You know, before you became a Christian, you might have thought, I'm a rather good person. Actually, I'm doing a pretty good job of life. I know what I'm doing. I'm better than other people around me. I'm a moral person. I'm a good person. But now, by the law of faith, we see 
Christ, don't we? We see the eternal Son of the Father, who left the glories of heaven to be born as a baby on a mission to save, dying on a cross in the place of sinners, bearing God's wrath and his sacrifice on the cross, willingly taking on himself the the moral burden for all of our sin to credit us with his righteousness. And we see that by faith and go, that's glorious, that's glorious, not this. Glory belongs to him and not me. So the law of faith forgets itself, doesn't it, in the face of Christ. And boasting is excluded. Self-worship is lost because we've seen what it looks like to be worthy of worship, and it's not us. So that saving faith, it rescues us from the pit of building heaven on earth. It rescues us from the the slum of comfort with its self-focused living by setting before us the glories of Christ, who with this mesmerizing perfection draws us to die for ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. It's a delight to follow him. It's a delight to sacrifice my own plans to follow Christ. Not because there's a law that says you must do that if you're a Christian, but because faith sees the glories of Christ and goes, I want to follow him. It understands, doesn't it, that his plans for the salvation of his people and the restoration of the world and the eternal glory, those plans for my self-worshipping comfort look rather tragic and pathetic. So I give them up. Let me just try and push this home for us gently this morning if I can. Notice that the exclusion of boasting, it's not an automatic thing. What, What I mean is that it is... Faith in Christ doesn't make it impossible for you as a Christian to boast. Does that make sense? Instead, it makes your boasting a strange contradiction of your faith in Christ. And you'll find no joy in it. It will kill your assurance. It will kill your joy as a Christian. So let me ask you this morning, have you forgotten how glorious the Lord Jesus is? Have you become distracted by your own glory? And if that's the case, and in a sense that's the case for all of us, isn't it, here this morning, then the thing that we're to do is just to take a slow walk through these verses and realize that at the heart of our salvation is this incredible work of Christ on the cross. That's glory. That's glory. Secondly, though, faith kills boasting because it's the recipient of divine glory. Just look back at verse 22 for a moment. Let me read it to you. The righteousness of God, that is, his giveawayable right, moral, good righteousness. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Just notice what's going on here and I know we spent time on these verses before. What's going on here in the gospel is that God is gifting to us, giving to us, through Christ, his full righteousness. You might want to put it another way. God in Christ is giving us his full approval. So that in the gospel, in the work of Christ, God looks at us this morning from the glories of heaven. He looks down at us as we're trusting in Christ and goes, they are brilliant. They are brilliant. Not because we have earned that brilliance in ourselves, but because we are clothed in the rightness, the righteousness of Christ. So the Bible tells us, and this is mind-blowing, isn't it, that the Lord delights in us, that we are to be the bride of Christ. Just think about this this morning, that all the joys of human love, 
Even human sex are just a pale shadow of the intimacy and tenderness and fullness of the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus and the longing that he has for us. And faith takes hold of that, doesn't it? Grasps after it as it's freely given. And of course then, self-worship and self-approval is utterly pointless. Why would I care what I think about myself when I know that God in Christ delights in me? Think about it like this. Imagine that your friend has inherited a mansion in the countryside. It's a giant and beautiful house. And they invite you over to see them. Say, come, I've inherited this beautiful mansion. Come and have a look at it. And when you get there, something surprising happens. You go to the front door, but they don't take you through the front door. They take you around the back of the house to this dirty, small little utility room where they've been working to unblock a sink. And they show you. And you're thinking, well, this is a bit odd, isn't it? I've come to see this giant mansion that you have inherited. You're living in a, you know, a 15-bed mansion, and the most glorious thing you can think of showing me is your semi-unblocked sink in a dirty, small utility room around the back of the building. How weird, how strange. Now, of course, that wouldn't happen, would it? But the truth is that spiritually, we do that all the time. We wonder why we have no joy in our Christian life or why our Christian lives feel so mundane or why even as Christians this morning we can feel so spiritually lukewarm and powerless and prayerless. Why we have no desire to share the gospel with others. It's because we've forgotten or perhaps maybe we've never even experienced that by faith we get to live in the mansion house of God's approval and we're stuck in the dirty utility room of self-worship and self-glory. Paul Tripp has written a book called A Quest for More. I recommend it to all of you. He puts it like this. We were never meant to be self-focused little kings ruling minuscule little kingdoms with a population of one. Sure, it's right for you to care about your health, your job, your house, your investments, your family and your friends. It would be irresponsible to act as if none of those things mattered. Yet, it is a functional human tragedy to live only for those things. It's a fundamental denial of your humanity to narrow the size of your life to the size of your own existence because you were created to be an above and more being. You were made to be transcendent. Or to put it in Romans 3 type language, you were made for divine righteousness, not self-worship. Again, let's just try and press this home really gently if I can. I think I do this as much as anybody else. The painful truth is that 99% of the things that we worry about probably fall into the category of the dirty utility room at the back of the mansion. We worry about what people think of us. We worry whether we've done enough. We worry whether people will understand us. We worry about whether people approve of us. When the law of faith puts us into the mansion house of God's glorious approval, and living there excludes the self-interested boasting of people-pleasing, Excludes it not as in makes it impossible for us, but as in makes it make no sense for us. So justification by faith changes how I view myself. Secondly, though, and we are going to speed up, justification by faith changes how we view others, verses 29 to 30. I think one of the parts of Romans 1 to 3 that's the hardest to get our minds around is this ongoing distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. We just don't feel that tension anymore. There are Very few people in churches who are demanding obedience to Old Testament law as a route for salvation. But I think Paul's point here has a broader application too. So notice that the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles has disappeared for two reasons. 
Look in the passage and notice, why is there no distinction now between Jew and Gentiles? Firstly, because there is one God. In other words, everybody stands before the same God. Everyone has the same God. God is not just the God of the Jews, he's the God of the Gentiles too. Second reason is because there's only one way to be justified before that God, and it's by faith, regardless of whether you were circumcised or not. Faith in Christ is the only way of salvation for the circumcised and for the uncircumcised, he says. It's the only way of salvation for anyone from any nation. Now, now think about this again with me. I, I think this is the opposite of the way that we would normally express it. We tend to think that discrimination between people is wrong because, at some sense, we're all basically the same. That we should relate to one another on a connection of a sort of a shared humanity. But Paul says our relations with one another are shaped not by a shared humanity between one another, but a shared standing before the God who is there. Do you see that? This is, this is really important, and it transforms the whole way we think about others. Unity is not in humanity, but is in God. Equality is not between us, as if we are the same as one another. We are not all gifted in the same way. There are people who will do great things that I will never do. And I have to understand that and come to terms with it. There are things that people will do that in a right sense make them more important than me. Instead, our unity comes from the fact that whoever we are, we stand before the same one God. A God who only has one way of saving people, which is not on the basis of what they do or what their status was, but on the basis of faith in Christ alone. Now, there are loads and loads of implications flowing from that. I, we could spend all the rest of the day thinking about this, and I'd love to do that, but others wouldn't. What are the implications of that? C.S. Lewis says that you have never met a mere mortal. You've never met someone who's just a bloke or just a woman. Anyone you have ever met is an immortal recipient of the divine image. Think about that. Everyone you have ever met is valuable, not so much because of something inherent in themselves, but because they have received something from the one who made them. That the creator God, the God of the Bible, is the God of all humanity and has placed his image in them. More than that, you have never met a person who doesn't need to hear the gospel. Because all of us stand before the same God, and there is only one way to be saved. So that regardless of who you are or where you were born, the great unifying truth in the world is that Christ is our only hope in life and death. Now just think about that, how that transforms your relationships with other people. Can you just see how that kills discrimination? Not because all distinctions are insignificant or because culture and language don't matter. That, that's the only way that our world has to destroy discrimination, by pretending that those differences make no difference or they don't matter. It's, it's trying to sort of make us all the same kind of person. But God's made us all very different, hasn't it? Discrimination is not killed by a sort of colour blindness or a culture blindness. Instead, it's killed by the law of faith that says there's one God and only one way to stand before him, and that's faith in Christ alone. It kills judgmentalism. It kills homophobia. It kills transphobia. It kills sexism. Not because you're justified in the sight of God by being better than anyone. No one is saved by being straight. No one is saved by being married. No one is saved by being a man. No one is saved by only having straightforward thoughts about their sexual identity. No, 
People are only saved by faith in Christ. Anyone without distinction can be saved through faith in Christ. And that unifies us. It has the power, too, to revolutionize church life. It saves us, doesn't it, from that community-killing, wicked desire to be in the right all the time, to think that we rank more highly than others because we know our Bibles better, or because we've been Christians for longer, or because our struggle with sin is maybe less obvious than the person who sat next to us. Maybe the mistakes that they make are not the mistakes that you would make, and you think you're better than them because of it. But that makes makes nonsense of justification by faith. Justification by faith says there's one God, and we only stand before him on one way, faith in Christ alone. It means, doesn't it, that all of our relationships are not just horizontal. They are vertical too. I relate to you, and you relate to me, on the basis that we have one God, and there's only one way of standing before him. Again, just think about that for you this morning. If you're tempted in any way to look down on others, if you're tempted to understand your own identity in any other way than understanding that you have been made and created in the image of the one true God, well, then you've not really understood these verses. If you think that you're better because of the culture that you're from or because somewhere deep down you think that you might deserve God's salvation, then can I urge you to repent this morning because saving faith in Christ kills that thought. There is one God and only one justification. Finally, and really very briefly, I'm only going to mention it, it changes how I read the Bible. The last sentence in our passage, I don't want to miss it out, verse 31, the salvation that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ does not overthrow the Old Testament law, but instead upholds it. Paul's point here is not that salvation by faith in Christ enables you to keep the law. That's to confuse your categories, isn't it? He's been talking about free justification received from Christ. That itself upholds the law, not in our transformed behaviour, but rather the point is that all the work of Christ is lawful. The work of God in Christ fulfills the legal requirements of the Old Testament law. Not so that you can delete it from your Bibles, but so that you can delight in it as a description of your Saviour. The descriptions of the perfections of the temple, the rigour of the sacrifices, the thoroughness of the ceremonial laws, all those are aspects of the beauty and the wonder of Christ's work. And the moral expectations of the Old Testament are a portrait of the heart of Christ and a description of the Saviour that we long to follow. So as we read in the Scriptures, in all their full completion in Christ, you're given a high-definition, colour picture of the Saviour Jesus Christ, a picture of God that should make us tremble and delight in equal measure. So there we have it, three implications of justification by faith. We don't boast. We don't boast. We glory in Jesus instead. We don't discriminate because we all stand and fall before the same God in the same way. And we don't change the Bible, but we see this glorious message of justification by faith running all the way through the full length of the Scriptures as God saves freely in Christ all who have faith in him. Let me pray. Loving Heavenly Father, how we thank you for what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that freely in him you have saved us by his work on our behalf on the cross. And thank you that that kills that self-interested, self-worshipping boasting to which we're all tempted. 
Oh, forgive us, Lord, that so often the lives that we live are a contradiction of the faith that we have in Christ. Please, we pray, go on doing that work of putting to death our sinful natures. And we pray, please, too, that we might enjoy the unifying effects of standing before the one true God on the one basis of faith in Christ. May that affect not only how we view one another in this room, but how we interact with others outside of this room. May we remember tomorrow morning as we go to school or work or home or as we walk down the street that we are not bumping into any mere mortals, but eternal, immortal people who are made in the image of God. And Lord, we pray too that you might help us to delight in your word as it paints this full colour picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his wonder and glory and beauty. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing together. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's stand.